Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. But mum... Her second no was even more emphatic. I looked longingly at the red swimsuit on Vogue window. Vogue in Roche Street, run by the three Miss McNamaras, must have been the very first boutique in Limerick, before we even knew the meaning of the word. It was exclusive and expensive. But my mother knew I needed a new swimsuit. My old one was threadbare and flapped around me, creating massive drag as I trained with Shannon Swimming Club at Corbally in Limerick. The previous day I had spoken to the blonde Miss McNamara at Vogue and she told me that the red swimsuit was a Catalina model made from the very latest lycra fabric designed for film stars. It clung to the figure, would look great on the beach and was particularly suitable for serious swimmers. All I had in my money box was two pounds and ten shillings, and the dark-haired Miss McNamara was sympathetic toward me and accepted that as a deposit. I tackled Mum again. The answer was still no. Fourteen pounds, nineteen shillings and elevenpence, she said in high dough. You'll have to pay for it yourself. I sighed. Where would I get that kind of money? But I wasn't the first woman to battle for a proper swimsuit. It was back in 1875 that Agnes Beckwith proclaimed herself the greatest lady swimmer in the world, but found that she was unable to show off her skills because of the very heavy clothing she had to wear in the water. As a teenager, she swam four miles from London Bridge to Greenwich, and she managed this feat wearing a full-skirted dress, petticoats, pantaloons and stockings. It's a wonder that she didn't drown. Then along came Amelia Bloomer. Sometime during the 1850s, she promoted the rational dress movement and introduced loose trousers worn over shorter skirts, especially for cycling. Although they didn't catch on until much later, they became known as bloomers and were eventually adapted for swimming. But the law had its eye on virtue and modesty and women in Europe and America could be arrested for revealing too many inches of leg. Wardens patrolled beaches to ensure that the law was adhered to. In the meantime, Agnes Beckwith was performing amazing displays of swimming in a whale tank at the Royal Aquarium in Westminster. She set up a record by treading water for 30 hours. The place was packed night after night and she was patronised by the future Edward VII. But I can't help wondering if it was her figure-hugging swimsuit rather than her swimming prowess that was the main attraction. Annette Kellerman was another powerful swimmer and in 1907 she was arrested at a public beach in Boston for indecent exposure for wearing a one-piece bathing suit that she had made herself by sewing her wooden stockings onto a long-sleeved vest. This was a woman who fought fitness all her childhood 
Ricketts had left her barely able to walk as a child and she wore leg braces until she was seven years old. Doctors recommended swimming to strengthen her legs and by the time she was 16 she held the women's world record for the 100 metres. She swam 40 kilometres down the Thames. She competed against 20 men down the Seine in Paris and came third. And she was the first woman to attempt to swim the English Channel. She performed water ballet in a glass tank, which inspired the Busby Berkeley films. In fact, a film based on her life was made in 1952 called Million Dollar Mermaid and starred Esther Williams. But best of all, she won the right for women to wear a proper one-piece swimming costume just like my red one on the window of Vogue in Rocha Street, Limerick. I had almost given up all hope of owning it and was resigned to losing my deposit when my Uncle Steph came to my rescue. His wife had had a difficult birth and needed someone to help her with the new baby for a couple of weeks and I happened to be available. Although my mother warned me that I should not accept money my uncle pushed enough pound notes into my pocket to pay for my swimsuit. And yes, it lived up to all my expectations. It was a very good swimming summer that year. It was an early Monday morning at Wally's Seafood Restaurant, Fire Island, New York. The sky was clear blue and it was warm already. My headache was fading quickly thanks to a freshly brewed black coffee and a cream cheese bagel from Rachel's. Enduring hangovers would be for later in life when showers, coffee and bagels would not have such an immediate therapeutic effect. The year was 1988 and I was 20 years old. Some friends and I had stumbled across Far Island in May that year en route to Montauk to search for summer work, courtesy of our J1 student visas. Life had never been better. The Monday morning cleanup was the only downside to a waiter's life at Wally's. A penance for enjoying a little too much work on a sun-drenched dining deck with classic rock music and generous tips all on continuous repeat. The work involved washing, disinfecting, scrubbing and drying the restaurant surfaces. It was a routine that took place weekly between 8 and 10am. Not the worst of atonements, I suppose, the root cause of my pain being the party rota that typically mirrored the 10-hour weekend work shifts. Otis Redding, James Taylor... Tom Petty and others played in the background as the restaurant's workforce set about its business. In silence mostly, the soothing music complemented by the sound of the early morning ferry taking the island's weekend visitors back to their busy Manhattan lives and schedules. 
That particular Monday morning was different, though, to the six or so that preceded it. A sense of gloom hung heavy in the air, and the knot in my stomach wasn't helped by the nauseating smells wafting up through the still full bins from the previous night's dinner sitting. Later that day, I would phone home to learn if I had passed my first year exams at NIHE, soon to become Dublin City University. Critically, the call would determine whether my time on the island was about to end abruptly. The thought of a return to stuffy libraries, barely legible notes and the pressure of fast approaching repeat exams provoked a sense of absolute despair. Once I was up to it, I would leave the party house that I shared with eight friends and a steady stream of nomadic visitors and stroll past the pizza shop that provided our daily sustenance, the sleepy restaurants and bars and towards the phone booth where my fate would be revealed. It was strange to think that my destiny was already sealed, the result already posted, old-fashioned style, on the wall of a college corridor some 3,000 miles from where I now stood. In fact, the piece of paper setting out the names of those students who had passed and omitting the names of those who had failed had been posted on that wall the previous Friday at 5pm. Torn between hope and dread, I had decided to postpone my date with destiny until another weekend on the island had lit up and slid by. It was late June already and time had passed so quickly since our 747 had touched down at JFK. I would never forget the thrill of experiencing Manhattan for the first time both by day and by night. The city I had known only from postcards depicting the iconic Brooklyn Bridge, breathtaking skyscrapers at night and of course the magnificent Statue of Liberty lived up to my first, last and every expectation in between. I could see the phone booth in the distance, all silver and shiny in the morning sun, its folding doors open and awaiting my arrival. The rumination picked up pace. Oh, how I would have tried to make those 9am lectures in the lead-up to the exams in May had I known the size of this US prize. Look at what I had put on the line. The bellyache laughter, the cut and thrust of living away from home with friends, the knucklehead nights in houses, Monday night football and CJs, Atlantic sunsets and conversations late into almost every night. And that's before the prospect of a post-Labour Day existence in September when the Manhattan crowds fade away and the islanders reclaim their land. It really was a case of everything's great in 88. Searching that very morning for a matching pair of clean socks was the only concern I could recollect in weeks. No worry, no anxiety, the epitome of bliss. 011-353-1 and then my home number. The agent thanked me for choosing the AT&T service and asked that I deposit $3.10 for the first three minutes. I could picture the home phone sitting on the hall table, underneath the mirror, propped up by the dog-eared golden pages. The ringing seemed to last forever. At last, 
Mum, it's me. Hello, son. We are so proud of you. As I walk down the street Seems everyone I meet Gives me a friendly hello Of Greece, I can tell about the sun, how it struck the villa's blue door as we climbed the steps, sealed it into a curtain of ice. A donkey with suitcases strapped to his back. Among ruins, we played at gods, and the spines of sea urchin you tried to tweeze from my feet splintered into black specks. Absence is the new order, I remind myself each time I re-enter the world alone, or on evenings when, forgetful, I reach out for the stoneware plate on the topmost shelf. I labor hard just to hover. You, the clapperless bell, who met my every question with silence. I'm trying my best here. In the farmer's market, a stranger passes me sprigs of lavender, their smell bitter? What mercy is small enough to fit? By the time we reached Crete, the spines had faded from the pink surface of skin, dull, so that I forgot about their venom, its quiet radiation within. The day after I arrived in New York in July 1990, I started looking for a job, attending to the relentless New York imperative of making money, and which didn't stop until I left nearly four years later. Over that summer, I had a dizzying array of jobs. The first was as a waiter, which lasted for all of three days before a combination of my incompetence at what it entailed and my intolerance of the crankiness of some of the customers came to a head. I quit after a row with someone who wanted the savoury omelette but without the egg. A quick succession of other jobs followed as a furniture mover, a hellish job of climbing the equivalent of Crowpatrick while lugging heavy furniture in 35 degrees of heat, as a focus group cameraman, as an office temp, and as a painter and decorator. And then, finally that autumn, I came upon a job that fitted in with my life as it was then, being an art student by day and a co-check by night. Lousy pay, but the tips were good. My co-checking job was in a big, gleaming midtown hotel, 
and I worked at all sorts of events there. Dental conferences, the ubiquitous bar mitzvahs, charity bachelor auctions, Think Love Island, cross with the balanced low horse fair. I got a fascinating insight into America, simultaneously so familiar and so alien. I was invisible, a drone, attending to the whims of the wealthy. As autumn snuck into winter, temperatures plummeted, but more coats meant a lot more tips. December was frantic. I worked every night, including at parties for several New Jersey waste disposal companies. At one of them, suddenly, a bunch of loud men appeared who looked like cartoon versions of people I'd seen in films with names like Paulie and Sal, wearing big pinky rings and with either bouffant hair or incredibly intricate comb-overs. And I was thinking to myself, no way. It's so obvious. They couldn't be. That was until a woman showed up with a fur coat, for which the coat room had strict protocols. You had to sign your ticket twice, and if your signature didn't match when you showed up to collect it, no fur coat. When I explained this to her, she demurred. Nah, if anyone stole my coat, they'd be dead before they'd have a chance to leave the damn building. No one tipped better, or for that matter, more ostentatiously than the mobsters. All pulled out of massive billfolds of cash. Ten, twenty dollars per coat. Most of the coat checks were students like me, or the working poor, holding down several jobs. I was usually rostered with a tall, skinny man from Georgia called Horace. And though we were like chalk and cheese, we got on pretty well. He was daft but funny and hard-working. He called me Gary, my actual name, and not Irish, what most of my co-workers called me. And also, unlike the others, Horace was curious about the people who passed in front of us and about the wider world. In the down times, we'd swap tales about our respective lives. He was interested in the minutiae of Irish life, such as what actually happened at the Wesley Disco. And he would ask me all sorts of inquisitive questions like, did Irish people really love potatoes? Which I tried to answer. In return, he loved telling me dark but funny stories about being poor and gay in rural Georgia. Later that winter, we were working at a small party for some Wall Street wasps, the worst tippers. While it was quiet, and in the lull that had settled in, against all my advice, Horace decided to try on a full-length black fur coat that had been left into us. Next thing, he proceeded to vogue. Then all the rage. Up and down the coat room he moved, striking extravagant poses, pretending to be its actual owner, while at the same time providing an hilarious running commentary as he went. Suddenly the door burst open, revealing our boss, who we had thought had gone home. Being so horrified by what she saw, she couldn't actually speak at first. Eventually, with her breath back, 
and in a gesture that is now sadly all too familiar, she pointed an accusatory finger and spat out a venomous, you're fired, at Horace. As he gathered his stuff, I split the tips and handed Horace a share. Just as he was about to exit, he turned around and I saw he was smiling. When am I ever again in this life going to have a chance to wear a $50,000 sable fur coat? And letting out his infectious laugh, he swept out the door. Last moments. Flash of snow against a window pane. Hardback chair beside a mechanical bed. Beside a mother, yours, who sinks in the coat of her body, smaller now than your own. In the station of her eyes, it is midnight. Slowly, the medicine abrades her features of their pain. Clear tether between this state, the next, a single tube. Your hand she holds, thin tether. Veins of her skull start as the silhouettes of trees. You minister a kiss to their cold branches. How long the drip of days, heartbeats, such rudimentary measurements for a life iridescent, though briefly. From your bag, fish a notebook, center her palm on a clean, lined page, point to the outline. What am I looking at? she asks. Gesture to the room, the city of white beyond, where there is a child, bundled and merry, whose umbrella keeps flipping in the snow. La Mer de Oise, say my companions. The other Irish sea, they say, and the gesture out of the ferry window. We are in Brittany, on the early morning boat that sails west across the ocean from Brest. It is a long Pentecost weekend in France, and the boat is full of holidaymakers. We are all of us sailing for the Isle of Wesson, just there on the horizon. The westernmost point in France and the largest island in La Mer d'Oise, and my destination for a month's writer's residency is a semaphore beside a lighthouse with the most powerful beam in Europe. This is a time for superlatives.
But first, La Merdi was the other Irish Sea. My Breton companions organised the Summer Writers Festival on Wessel and a residency which I've been awarded and they are accompanying me to see me settled in, to introduce me to the people of Wessel, to make sure I have everything I need, a bike, a torch, a handle on bakeries and fish shops. And as the ferry leaves the harbour, they speak of the archipelago of Skerries and just a few inhabited islands that lie sprinkled across the sea between Brest and Wesson. These are swirling waters, filled with the telltale white lines of currents and of rocks that have claimed many lives over many centuries. The age-old story of fishing communities, the men of Wesson went to sea and the women stayed at home, worked the land, raised the children, kept the houses in repair and watched the horizon, scanning the treacherous seas which all too often took the lives of their loved ones. And other disasters, the steamship Drummond Castle, which foundered off the West Coast in 1896, with the loss of over 200 lives, and the tanker Amico Cadiz, and here my Breton companions shudder, which struck rocks and sank north of Wesson in 1978, and slicked the coast of the island and of Brittany, with oceans upon oceans of oil. And why Iroise? Why an Irish sea? But here a glance at the map tells its own story. Westernmost Brittany and the southern coasts of Ireland are not, after all, so very far apart. And the seas in Irish culture have always been a highway rather than any kind of barrier. And humans travel, have always travelled. And the Bretons have for centuries been accustomed to the Irish fetching up on their rocky coasts. As the ferry purrs across the water, we speak of the wild geese flying to Brittany and of the United Irishmen, of Wolfe Tone waiting impatiently at Brest Harbour in 1796, of the eventual sailing for Bantry in December of that year, of an ill-starred French fleet of 43 ships under General Osh. And we speak of infinitely more ancient history, of the age-old cultural kinship and the similarity in coastlines and seascapes and weather that meant, that has always meant, that Irish travellers have felt a connection to this Atlantic corner of France. And then, of course, the language. The Isle of Wesson is Ennis Usa in Breton. Ennis, Ennis? And I nod and laugh and, yes, I see, I say, and in my terrible French, oui, je comprends. The ferry pushes further out into the open ocean, and now I feel the pull and heave of la mer d'Oise. The seas foam with white breakers on hidden rocks, and I understand the skill of the sailors who know these waters and the fears of those left at home. We pause in the harbour of Moulin, a little island that lies eerily low in the water, and now we make the final crossing towards Wesson. If Moulin is low, Wesson is high, sheer cliffs rise abruptly from the waves, and a lighthouse, Wesson and La Mer d'Oise are full of lighthouses, there on the cliff edge. 
a modern harbour wall, striking, contemporary, beautiful, studded with round apertures through which the sea pours and flows. The violence of the winter storms on Wesson would pulverise the solid harbour wall. So the islanders design in such a way as to live with the sea, to bend to its ways. I look away from those sheer cliffs and I see that Wesson is green and lush, pink sea thrift and succulents glowing pink and orange on the edge of the harbour itself. I remember that the theme of this year's Island Literary Festival is James Joyce and Ulysses. And as if on cue, my companions turn to me and smile and say, Bienvenue à Ithac. Welcome to Ithaca. And now, I step ashore. On this morning's Sunday Miscellany, you heard Summer Swimsuit by May Leonard from the archives. The phone call home was by Shane O'Sullivan. You also heard Of Greece, which was a poem by Lauren Green. And Gary Coyle brought us Horace. We also had a second poem by Lauren Green called Last Moments. And The Other Irish Sea was by Neil Hegarty. This morning's music included Wild Irish Rose performed by Keith Jarrett. I'm just a lucky so-and-so was, of course, Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. The American Four Seasons, song number two by Philip Glass, had Gregory Harrington on violin. In there, too, was Bob Dylan's Wigwam. And lastly, Talk to Me of Mendocino was from Kate and Anna McGarrigal. The broadcast coordinator on Sunday Miscellany is Carolyn Dempsey and the producer is Cleanani Onloon. And you can listen back to that programme and indeed all the vast archive as well of Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.